When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's been raised. He's not here. Look, this is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. It's so great to see all of you. Hello to our online community as well. Uh, we love you. Uh, if, if you're visiting today, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be unpacking this passage that I just uh, read to you. And this passage is, is brimming with good news power, isn't it? If this short paragraph of words that I just read to you, these, these few words and their equivalent in the other three Gospels did not exist, we would not be here doing this. And in fact, this building wouldn't be here. It would probably be condominiums or, or stores or, or restaurants or, or another school or something like that. It would not be here. And Jesus and what Jesus did would just be a curiosity of the history books and nothing more. A historical story that came to a tragic end. But because of these few words, because of this small paragraph and the power and truth behind these words and the event that they record, everything in the cosmos spills over with redemptive opportunity. Nothing and no one is too far gone that they cannot be reached or freed or forgiven or healed, granted mercy and given eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the best news you will ever hear in your life. And it's the only hope for this out-of-kilter planet. The story begins after the harrowing events of chapters 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel, and we're focusing on Mark this year, uh, as those of you who've, who call Seven Oaks home know that. And, and it, it begins after the end of 14 and 15, and we had that narrated for us on Good Friday. And, and the very end of it, uh, we had the burial of Jesus where his bruised and battered body had been laid down in a burial tomb. And we're told at the end of chapter 15 that the two Marys had seen where they had laid Jesus. And that's how, in chapter 16, it picks up with those same women who knew where to go then and went there to anoint his body. It's the day after the Sabbath. Of course, in Jewish custom, you can't do anything really on the Sabbath. It was against the Jewish law. So it's the day after the Sabbath, and off they go then to anoint his body. What they were actually doing was taking a bunch of spices, and they were just going to pour it over Jesus' body. And the reason they were, were doing that was, was actually twofold. It was partly sort of a reverential thing to do. It was a way to honor the dead, 
It was something that you did to, uh, to express loving devotion and care for the person who had died. And another reason they were doing it was to try to cover the smell of decomposition. It was very practical. Back in the first century, they didn't bury the dead six feet under that would trap the smell, right? They were in a burial cave, and the, the Middle East is hot. And so the spices partly were to try to cover the smell of decomposition. So there were two reasons they were going uh, to do that. And, and, and Jews didn't embalm bodies. The Egyptians did that. But they would just cover them in spices for those reasons. And this is what we might call the primary burial, but there was a secondary burial. So what they would do about a, a year later or so, after decomposition had, had well passed, they would go in and they would collect the bones of the dead and they'd put them in ossuaries. They would collect them in these boxes. And what they would do then is they would put them in a different part of the cave, maybe on a shelf, maybe in a different part of the chamber or something like that, because uh, no one burial chamber was ever for just one body. It would contain many bodies, usually a family or, or whatever. A family would own a, a burial plot if they were wealthy enough too. And so the picture that's up on the screen there for you is from uh, around about the first century. Um, it's, it's not from Jerusalem, but it's from, I think, Tiberias. But you can see in there, uh, you can see a couple of the ossuary boxes, and then you can see the sort of shelf where they would lay the body during its primary burial. So that's what they were doing. They were going to uh, cover his body in spices. What this tells us, what this tells us is that those women, when they were heading to the tomb, were not going expecting a resurrection. They weren't going there expecting to see that Jesus, even though he'd said so, he said a lot of things they didn't get. He often spoke in parables they didn't always get. So they were not going there to find Jesus raised. Why would they take spices with them to anoint his body if they actually thought he was going to be raised? Why would they worry about the stone? Well, who's, a few women, like it's, it's a huge stone. We're not going to be able to push it aside. Why were they worried about that if they expected that Jesus was going to be raised? The story and these preparations and what the women were actually doing is the strongest proof that we have that even Jesus' closest followers were not expecting a resurrection from the dead. And so they didn't make this story up. They were eyewitnesses to an event that shocked them, that amazed them, and changed the world. They head out on the first day of the week. The first day of new creation reality. All of a sudden, the structures of reality had changed. Something that wasn't possible before was now made possible. The chasm that is between humanity and God was all of a sudden crossable for the first time ever. So there was a new reality. This is the first day in the new creation reality. And they set out... The dawning of a new beginning for humanity. And we're told that the sun had risen. Understand that play on words. The sun had risen. Light had come. Light had shone into the darkness. The rising of the sun dispelled the darkness that covered the land at the crucifixion. It was light now. And when the women arrive at the tomb, their concern about how are we going to roll away the stone was unnecessary because it was already rolled away. And this was probably pretty shocking for them. It wouldn't have been, oh, good, we don't have to figure that piece out now. It was probably pretty shocking. They would have expected one of two things. Either oh, some people have gone in and desecrated the body, 
or they would have thought grave robbers. Grave robbing was a thing in the first century because the grave clothes, particularly the face cloth, was a really expensive fabric and you could sell that and grave robbing was a thing. And so they were probably disturbed by this and they arrive and they, and they go in they go into the, into the burial uh, chamber, probably pretty gingerly, not sure what they're going to see, not knowing what they might find, and all of a sudden they see a young man sitting there in a white robe. And we can be pretty certain that we know that's an angel. Although it says young man, we know it's an angel, and the reason we know it is because the other gospels say similar things. In, in, in Luke's gospel, it actually says two men in, in dazzling white clothes were there, or, uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, he actually uses the word angelos in Greek. Angels were there as well. Sometimes the, the details are a little bit different in the gospels depending on the theological conviction of the gospel writer and what they're trying to say. We've said before, Mark isn't concerned with detail. It's, it's the shortest of the gospel. He doesn't tell us a lot about it. If you remember back at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of Mark, we talked about how it's an action gospel. Mark was way more concerned about uh, moving from thing to thing and talking about events that happened rather than big theological treaties and expansive sections of teaching and so on. The white robes tip us off that this is an angel, and the typical angelic assurance of fear not or do not fear or don't be alarmed also tips us off that this was an angelic being. And so the gospel of Mark is actually bracketed beginning and end. It has parentheses around it with two messengers. It begins with John the Baptist, the messenger, who's preparing the way of the Lord, and it ends with an angelic uh, um, messenger. So the, the first messenger is preparing the way telling the people what God is about to do, and the, and the final messenger is, is saying what God has just done. So it's bracketed with these two uh, messages. The clothes of both messengers are mentioned, a rough camel's hair shirt and a belt around his waist, John the Baptist, contrasted with the white robes of the young man or the angel. John was an earthy, of-this-world prophetic messenger. The angel is in dazzling white He's from another realm of existence. The way figures in both stories. In the opening scene, John says, prepare the way of the Lord. And at the end, the angel says, the, the, the way has now been prepared and the disciples are to follow it and go into Galilee and go meet him there because he's not here, he's gone. He's already ahead of you. And that's one of the great things about this story. One of the things I love about this story is the fact that Jesus isn't, hanging out there waiting to reveal himself to them so that they can see who he is and believe in him and he can give them the great commission, go into all the world and, and preach the gospel and so on. He's not hanging around waiting for the disciples to come and see him. He's gone. And what I think it tells us is that Jesus is on a mission. In fact, he's always been on a mission, but the mission continues. You see, Israel has failed in its mission to live up to its calling and its purpose what God had asked it to do. And the disciples were still in need of a lot of help. So Jesus was stepping into the role, the calling, the mission. And there was work to be done. So there's a very strong piece here about go follow him. He's off doing his thing. Jesus has not been raised here to give you a nice little spiritual experience. 
Actually, Jesus has been raised for the sake of the world, and he's off doing his thing. So you need to go meet him there. The fact that he's gone into Galilee is interesting as well. Jerusalem is a really, really important part for the ancient nation. This is uh, an important city, but we have to avoid getting into the trap of this is the one holy city, this is where it all happens ideology. That's partly what tripped Israel up. This is the holy city, this is where the temple is, this is the center of everything, this is the seat of power of Judaism, it's where the Sanhedrin sit, everything points to Jerusalem. But if you were here last Sunday, you may recall me talking about the Palm Sunday passage that included a significant denunciation of the temple and all that it represented. Jerusalem became the, the city of the fruitless fig tree, the doomed temple, the stronghold of hostility, and now the place of Jesus' ultimate rejection and crucifixion. The people of Israel have missed the day of the visitation of their God, and it's tragic. Galilee, on the other hand, was the place of Jesus' upbringing. It was the place that the disciples were first called. It was the the place, place where Jesus performed power and healed people and delivered people of demons. It was a place of devoted crowds and receptive people, largely receptive people. Uh, Nazareth would be our sort of um, uh, exception. So Jesus has gone ahead and he's gone into Galilee, back to the place where the disciples were first called. And the angelic messenger is telling them, go back there, meet Jesus there. You need to regroup after the horrors of the passion. You need to go to the place where you were first called and again take up the journey of discipleship in this new reality. This was probably especially important for Peter. And that's where I'd like to camp around for a few minutes together with you. Speaking of Peter, there is this wonderful reference in verse 7. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. Wasn't Peter already a disciple? Why are they highlighting Peter? Why his disciples and Peter, that he's going ahead of you to Galilee there, you'll see him just as he told you. At the beginning of our teaching series back in January, you may recall me saying to you that it is pretty widely believed that actually the gospel of Mark may have been written by the hand of Mark, but it's the words and the sermons and the, and the recollections of Peter. This is actually Peter's words. Just, Mark was just a scribe. And, and I think that's right. And there's a significant connection between the two men in the early church in the New Testament. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it in in Peter's letters, actually. He calls Mark his son, which probably means he converted him. And so there's this connection between them. And also the the nature of this gospel, that it's shorter, that it's action-packed, it's full of activity, sort of supports the idea of what we kind of know of Peter, of being a bit of an impulsive man rather than being sort of a theologian like a Matthew or a historian like a Luke. He's an action guy. He's just recording, then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that, and he delivered this, and he healed this person. Like, it's just action. It's one of the things I love about Mark. 
And so partly then, I think this supports the idea that Peter's name's going to come up there somewhere, like he's going to have his signature in the, in the gospel, and Peter. But also, I think the language of his disciples and Peter is interesting, given Peter's three-time denial of Jesus. He was asked when Jesus had been arrested, are you also one of them? You're also a Galilean. Didn't we see you with him? And all three times, Peter said, no, no, I don't know him. Like he swears he doesn't know him. He denies him three times. And Jesus had predicted him. He said, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And it was in response to Peter's kind of blustery, even if everybody else abandons you, I'll never abandon you, Jesus. And so he denies him three times, and the cock crows, and and Peter just weeps. He says he wept bitterly. I can't believe I denied him. At his moment of need, I denied I even knew him. From John's gospel, we know that Peter eventually returns to being a fisherman. Peter goes back to Galilee and he starts fishing again. He's gone back to what he knew how to do and he's gone back to making a living. I think Peter understood himself to be disqualified. I failed. I let Jesus down. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. And so off he goes. He'd failed. And if these are the words of Peter, then I feel like this is a little bit of a fingerprint on the writing of Mark. Go and tell the disciples and Peter That's right, I'm still one of them. I'm still one of the 11. Remember Judas is gone, they they don't replace the 12th until the book of Acts. I'm still one of them, can you believe it? The disciples and Peter and me. Back in Galilee, I mentioned that Peter had gone fishing. Well, as recorded again in John's gospel, Jesus shows up, the resurrected Jesus shows up on the shore and Peter's out on the boat with the others and they're fishing. And Jesus learns from them that they're not being very successful. He says, throw the net to the other side. And they throw the net to the other side, and the catch of fish is so big they can barely pull it in. And all of a sudden, lights start coming on. And maybe Peter's a little bit slower, I don't know, but it's John who shouts to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And in typical Peter fashion, instead of saying, well, let's row back in and go meet him, Peter just dives into the lake and just swims ashore. And meanwhile, Jesus has prepared breakfast. Jesus has prepared breakfast on a charcoal fire, not unlike the charcoal fire that Peter warmed his hands around when he denied him three times. Jesus was taking Peter back to the point of his sin. And so there they sit across the charcoal fire, and they have breakfast together, and full of love, full of forgiveness, Jesus reinstates Peter as his disciple and his friend. Three times he asked him, do you love me? Once for each of the three denials. And he's been redeemed. Peter's been reinstated. Peter's been forgiven. Peter's been loved. See, the gospel would have been written many years probably after this event. Uh, this gospel of, of Mark, it would have been written long after Peter denied Jesus, long after this charcoal fire thing, after the ascension to heaven, after Pentecost, after a lot of the events of the book of Acts where Peter is used 
in dramatic ways, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church, and Peter's used, and he, he ministers and all of that, and, and later on, and I kind of imagine him as an old man, sort of, you know, recollecting before his own death. I'm not sure it happened like that. It was probably Mark just recalling the stuff that, that Peter had um, said and preached over the years, inspired by the Spirit. And I imagine Peter, though, saying, when the angel told us to go and meet Jesus in Galilee, he said, tell the disciples, I'm Peter. Yes, me. I'm still worthy to be called a follower. I'm still a disciple. I'm still a friend of Jesus. He forgave me. He reinstated me. He loves me. And I think it just communicates something of Peter's awareness of the enormity of the mercy and grace in his own life. I imagine Peter probably lived somewhere in the shadow of the denial throughout his life. I don't think he lived under shame. I think what we, what we read of Peter in, in Acts and, and his own letters, I think, he, I think he got past that. I don't think he lived in shame, but I don't think he would have ever forgot it. What it would have done is kept him humble, kept him thankful, kept him dependent, and probably fueled his ability to be merciful to others. This is the guy who cut the ear off the, slave, uh, off the um, uh, high priest's uh, servant. And um, it probably softened him. And he learned to be merciful. When he witnessed to others, if God forgave me this, of course he can forgive you. For those who are given, forgiven much tend to love much. So it begs the question on Easter Sunday morning, what about you and what about me? If you've been with us through these last few days, you've been taken on a journey through the passion of Christ from the, the, the darkness and the fear and the pain of Good Friday to the joy this morning and the celebration of Easter Sunday. Uh, maybe you were here on Maundy Thursday uh, and, and shared with us there. Maybe you've been observing Lent this year. Maybe over the last week you've been pouring over the passion narratives and whatever, whatever you've been doing. And, and, and certainly if, if you're here, we've been celebrating this resurrection. And maybe what we all need to do is put ourselves into the passage today. What if we took the name of Peter out and put our own name in there? But go, tell his disciples and Jamie that he's gone ahead to Galilee. Put your name in there. How does that land on you? How does that feel? What, me? I'm included? included. wonder how it sits with us. You see, the gospel is just so personal. It's for everyone, and it's for you. God looks out on the entire multitude of the earth that he did it for, and he looks at you, and he looks directly in your eyes as though you're the only one. This was all for you. That's how personal the gospel is. Some of us live under such incredible shame because of the things that we have done. And some of us live under such weight because of the things that we didn't do that we should have done. And others of us have grown up with a voice telling us we're unworthy, we're unlovable. We don't matter like everybody else does. Some of us struggle with such insecurity and fear and anxiety about the future because the future just looks grim to us and we're scared. 
for a host of reasons. I could go on and on and on listing various scenarios that would capture most of us, but I trust that the Holy Spirit is touching you where you need to be touched this morning. I want to tell you this morning that your name belongs where Peter's is. I want to tell you that you are included, that the death and resurrection of Jesus has the final say on that. So it's not me. I'm no authority. You don't have to believe me. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is the authority. And it's said that you are included. And so that's settled. Whatever you think, that's settled. The good news of Easter, the gospel, is that Jesus has taken upon himself all your sin and all your shame, and he's nailed it to the cross. And then he's been resurrected, and he's carried you with him in his resurrection. Because if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then he carried you with him in his resurrection. So if you've put your trust in him, you have eternal life placed in your heart and your soul now, and you will be bodily resurrected at the end of time when that arrives also. So there is both a now and a future aspect to salvation. The now part, what it means is that you can right now come up out from underneath that shame and that heaviness and that weight and that sense of being unloved and that you can sit secure in the knowledge that you're included, that you are deeply loved, you are redeemed, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I feel like we need to respond this morning um, I'm just going to invite you, if it's helpful to close your eyes, you can do that, to take a posture. Maybe it's helpful to open your hands. Uh, hands are sort of in a symbolic of receiving. I believe the Holy Spirit wishes to apply some truth into your soul this morning and help you on a journey of renewing your mind. I believe the Spirit wants to undo some lies that you've believed. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to break in and comfort you. So I'm just going to declare some things. I'm just going to ask, Holy Spirit, would you just breathe fresh across this congregation this morning? Would you meet our friends in their living rooms and kitchens at home? I believe that the Spirit is speaking to you. That thing you did it's been paid for. Don't keep returning to it. Don't return to it like a dog returns to its vomit. That's not good. Let it go. That thing you didn't do, you're not condemned because you didn't do it. 
He's dusting you off. And he's saying, stop fixating. I'm dusting you off and walk on, walk with me. We'll figure out the consequences. We'll figure it out together. I'm close to you. So I just pray, God, over my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family. Just pray over them. Ask, Spirit, that you would just breathe, that you would give them visions, pictures, images, give them words, give them feeling and emotion. Give them a sense of your closeness. Would you draw them into your embrace? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew, I got carried away. What are we doing now? Are we singing? Okay. Of course we are. Avon, can I have the the bridge first? So this is going to show up uh, partway through the song. And I don't have to fear the future. And I don't have to walk it alone. Because I don't have to be his prisoner. Resurrection rolled that stone And I don't have to fear the darkness And I don't have to hide in shame Cause I don't have to be its hostage The resurrection broke those chains You stand with us? I don't have to fear the future I don't have to walk it alone I don't have to be its prisoner The resurrection rolled that stone And I don't have to fear the darkness And I don't have to hide in shame Cause I don't have to be its hostage The resurrection broke those chains It's all because he lives
Why don't you just take a seat for a moment? We're not quite done. Uh, usually, uh, I get to have the last word, uh, but not today, and that's good. Uh, our wonderful dancers are going to have the final word today, so, uh, so that's great. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do is, is, is not leave quite yet. Uh, I am going to sort of pronounce a benediction as I normally do, but the girls are going to dance, and then what they're going to do is they're going to run out. You guys are running out, right? You're going to head out, uh, so please don't trip them up. And uh, they're going to run out, and that's your signal then to be able to get up and, and, and head out. And we'd invite you to stay. We have uh, coffee and cookies and things like that. We want to hang out together uh, this morning and have some fellowship uh, together, which would be wonderful. But may you go then from here today with a fresh sense and a fresh revelation of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ that is available to you, not just on Easter Sunday, and not just on Sundays, but always, every day. Amen. Go in his peace. Amen. Amen. Oh,